Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is uh, Wednesday, and I'm happy it's Wednesday because uh, we get to speak to David Wheaton. We're going to continue our study on the epic Exodus how it, and how it displays the awesome God. I can't wait. We've been in this study now. We're in our 21st chapter starting today, and we're going to go over some of the highlights of chapter 20 and move on. David, of course, is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can always go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David. He has an amazing radio show on the weekends on Saturday. You can also check out the podcast and his writings and books, and you can go to thechristianworldview.org. David, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill. Yeah, likewise. So last time we chatted, we were in the uh, Ten Commandments, such a huge chapter in Exodus. That was uh, chapter 20. Maybe we can do a little bit of um, uh, looking back at that and then move on. Yeah, we actually spent two programs on that, talking about one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, and it would be impossible to overstate the importance of Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are listed. I think I read this quote a couple of times ago, but I think it's worth reading again. It says, by these Ten Commandments, true theology and true worship of God, the name of God and the Sabbath, and then family, life, marriage— property, truth, and virtue are well protected, unquote. In other words, it pretty much addresses almost every single aspect of life. It gives God's standard uh, for His holiness and what He expects of us. So the purpose of the law is to establish God's standard for us, mankind, but it's also our reaction to it should be, oh, no, I got that. I keep all of those. The the reaction should be... (laughs) There's These are great and good and holy laws, but I can't keep them. Uh, like it says in Galatians 3, the, the law is a schoolmaster uh, to lead us to Christ. Our response to those Ten Commandments should be, they're holy, they're just, they're good, I should strive to keep them with by God's help, but to be honest, I really can't keep them in actual deed or in motivation. I'm a sinner, and what must I do, therefore, to be saved? To, for me as a sinful person, to be made right with a a holy God. So that's really the purpose of the law, to lead us to realize that we can't keep it, and uh, Jesus Christ kept it on our behalf so that we, he could die on the cross and pay the penalty we deserve to pay for our sins, so we could be put our faith in His work, not our own work, not our own keeping of the Ten Commandments, so that we could be right with God. So as you go through these Ten Commandments, Bill, whether it's, you know, list, I, I think it's, I really encourage listeners to memorize them, at least memorize the short version of them. Like, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make yourself an idol. Number three, you shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. That one right there is the the key to a stable society. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness or lie. Number ten is the only one that's an attitude, actually, of the ten. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's home, whatever. And so if 
I think it's by no accident, Bill, that when these were diminished, taken out of schools, being posted on schools in America, they're still posted in some places. But when that law was taken out of the way, the, the law was meant to look at and reveal who God is, what his standard is for us. It had an impact on our country. And when it was taken away from many public places, I, I think it's no, it's not a stretch to say that's probably part of the reason why our country is, has gotten so far away from, from obeying God. And so these Ten Commandments are extremely important and uh, from Exodus 20. Mm-hmm. And the law, David, uh, can be used as a very strong evangelical tool. How should we use the law? Well, yeah, kind of jumping off what we just discussed there, that the law is a, is a schoolmaster or tutor like that. That, that should yeah, lead like that. us to Christ. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen Ray Comfort. You probably have. have, have he's a very well-known evangelist. And he uses the Ten Commandments all the time in evangelism. Now, you don't need to have a formula here, but it's just—for someone to be saved, even the idea of being saved implies that, well, what do I need to be saved from? You know, what what, what do you mean, saved? Right. Uh, Well, what that means is we need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from God's wrath. Well, for what? Why is God upset at me? Why is he wrathful? Why is he going to judge me? Well, it's because of our sin. And so the law is what shows us that we're a sinner. So we can go around, if we're comparing ourselves just to other people or some, some standard of morality we make up, you know, we may not think that we're very bad, we're very sinful. But when we, when we show someone the law, and this is what Ray Comfort will often do, he'll say, well, have you ever told a lie? And people will say, well, of course I've told a lie. What does that make you? Well, I guess that makes me a liar. Then he said, well, have you ever stolen anything, even something small? He said, well, sure, I, I stole something, you know, some money from my parents once. Well, what does that make? What is someone who steals something? Well, that makes you a, a thief. And he said, have you ever taken God's name in vain? And the person said, well, of course. I mean, I, almost everyone's done that. Well, you know what that is? That, that's blasphemy, taking God's name in vain. Then he'll, he'll say one more. He said, have you ever looked at a woman or a man to lust for that person? The person will say, of course, I, I've done that. Well, he'll say, well, Jesus says, if you have looked with lust at someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he says to the person, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemer, adulterer at heart. How do you think God is going to judge you on Judgment Day, innocent or guilty? And they say, well, by that standard, I'm going to be guilty. Then he'll get into the good news and say, well, the good news is he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty, the fine for your sin. So you don't have to pay the penalty yourself. Jesus offers to pay it for you. And so when you repent of that sin you just admitted to doing, and you put your faith in the person of Christ and his work for you on your behalf on the cross, God promises to forgive you and reconcile you to him and give you eternal life. So that's how the law can be used in evangelism, because it's almost like people have to get unsaved and realize they're a sinner in danger of God's judgment before they can be saved or born again. Mm, so good. I appreciate that, uh, David, and I love that illustration. It's it's a powerful one, and I have seen Ray do it on his street evangelism, and it, it is yeah. a, a very powerful uh, way of talking to someone because they, by their own admission, say, yeah, I guess I, I have lied, I, am, I have stolen stuff, and I have lusted, and so I guess I'm guilty. And right. so the and good news just, is, yeah, the guilt yep. can be removed. Yep. You're right, and we're we're all naturally professionals at <laughs> absolving ourselves of any sinful culpability, right? Mm-hmm. We all think we're we're good people. Well, I'm a good person. Well, that's because we're comparing ourselves to other people, right? Or comparing ourselves to some made up standard that we have. When we compare ourselves to the pure and undefiled Ten Commandments, then all of a sudden, oh well, I've broken every single one, many, many hundreds of times in my life, either in either in 
actual act of it, or as Christ even intensified them in the New Testament. So it was not just about committing adultery physically, that, that's, that would be a sexual relationship with someone who's not your husband or wife, but he intensifies it by saying, if you've lusted after some, if you've had a motivation to let you've committed adultery in your heart, or if, you've, if you hate someone, if you have a strong word for someone, that's like committing a, a murder, Christ said. So he intensified these things so no one could wiggle out and say, oh, I've never committed adultery, I've never murdered anyone. Well, if you've done these things, that these added attitudes in your heart, it's like doing the actual sin listed in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. David, let's jump to Exodus 21, and you start reading through that, and you go, oh, why are there so many additional laws? Or maybe they're what we call them ordinances, what, but why so many? Well, it's the same thing in our society as well. You know, you have these big general things where you, you shall not murder. We all believe that in our society. But then if if someone gets murdered, they go to trial, and there's all different kinds of murder, first degree, second degree, third degree. So, for example, it says in Exodus chapter 21, and basically this is just an expansion of the Ten Commandments. It takes the Ten Commandments and then kind of brings out some many different scenarios from them. So verse 12, chapter 21, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. There's the death penalty, by the way. And I would just make as an aside note here for intentional murder that is proved beyond any reasonable doubt, it is actually unjust to not use the death penalty. I'll just kind of throw that out there. It's a, we can talk about that some other time, but that's very clear throughout Scripture. Uh, again, you don't want to be executing the wrong people, right. but for cut-and-dried cases where it's witnesses and everything else, it's unjust to say, we're going to put that person in jail for the rest of your life because you've just murdered someone, you've destroyed a person's life, you've destroyed their family, and the punishment for that, Scripture says right there in Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, he who strikes a man so he dies shall surely be put to death. But then the next verse, there are some conditions here. But if he did not lie in wait for him, in other words, there wasn't premeditation, then I will appoint a place for him to flee. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it goes on to a third scenario. If a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, um, you know, he, he, you are, in other words, that's a death penalty situation as well. So there's lots of different degrees here. If you kill someone by accident, uh, but the point was, in all these different laws, was to really for this particular example of murder, was to have something in place so that people were very careful how they lived. Even killing someone accidentally that you should have known better wasn't the death penalty per se all the time, but there was strong punishment for it. Be careful getting into a fight and killing someone. There are all these different little scenarios that that brings out here. Mm -hmm. Another one, verse 15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This is this is harsh. Wow. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. I mean, not many of us might be living uh, today if we were judged according to this particular law. Um, so we, we may think that we've evolved more and we're more compassionate nowadays, but let's keep in mind that these laws, these aren't just capricious by God to go and you know end people's lives and kill people for the first sin they do, but they were put in place by a good and just God in order to create a good and just society so that people aren't harming one another without consequence. And we can see that in society today, by the way, not to get into too many current events, right. but when you advocate, quote-unquote, defund the police, 
when you don't prosecute theft under $950 like they were doing in California, it's no wonder people are rushing into stores, stealing stuff. When there's no consequence for sin or crime, well, people just kind of go ahead and do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. David, I'm already previewing Chapter 22, and it seems like there is less ownership of property and resources, and I'm wondering, does the Bible even promote socialism? So maybe that's what we'll talk about when we come back. David Wheaton is my guest. He is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org as we continue our study on Exodus. We call this series How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. We'll be right back. guest as we continue our study on Exodus. It's great. It displays the awesome God. Of course, he is awesome. So, David, in chapter 22, there's talk, what it sounds like, talk of less ownership of property and resources, which, does that sound like socialism, and does the Bible promote that? Well, you often hear this, you know, especially when you read in Acts about the early church, you know, where they had all things in common and so forth, and it sounds like God is advocating for more of a socialistic or even communistic type system where the state owns most everything and people kind of share and, you know, you, you work, but you don't work for yourself and your family. You kind of work for just the common good. And the, just looking at the Ten Commandments, almost the second half of the Ten Commandments imply private property. Uh, you know, number six, you should not murder. You have a right to your own body, your, your life. Number seven, you know, committing adultery, you know, your spouse, you know, not like ownership, like slavery, but that's, that, that's, you know, you're one, you can't steal that, take that away or not steal. Number eight, number, number 10, covet something else. There's an implication that, that God wants us to own private property. And that, that goes against kind of the Marxist idea of, you know, when, you know, everyone has the same, no one, no one has any more than there. That's what creates disparities in society and, and so forth. So let's just, like this guy, Klaus Schwab said recently, the chairman of the World Economic uh, Forum, he said, um, by some year, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a Marxist ideal, but the Bible doesn't teach that at all. As a matter of fact, I mentioned all these laws, most of them are, are about protecting life and your own private property. And so ownership, God knows this, and this is why he wants it, ownership of private property leads to the following. It leads to an incentive to work and produce so you can, you can purchase or own private property. And I, mean, I don't mean property just like land. I mean just things and food and different things that you own that aren't just given to you by the state. That it also ownership also leads to a, a duty to care for yourself and your family because you have to get obtain private property, food, and other things uh, to be able to, to protect yourself or feed your family. Um, it also leads to a, a, a need to protect what you own. And so there's, a, there's an idea of a, you have a home and you're to protect that home. It's not just to be overrun by someone next door who says, now I want your home, give it up to me. Mm -hmm. So all throughout Scripture, that, that, that is a, a straw man, a false notion that God doesn't want us to own anything, that we should share everything in common. 
But God does want us to be charitable from a willing heart. That, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But that doesn't mean we don't own private property and that private property is, you know, somehow bad and because it creates disparities because some will have more than others. And David, in Acts, when they were gathering resources to share with one another, that was the church. That was not the whole world. Right. Or that was not the whole community. It was the church, the church family. That, that That's exactly right, Bill. It's a, it's a great point. And, and it's true. It's a great thing for people to willingly sell what they have and share it with other believers. That That's a good thing. But there's a difference between charitable sharing and coercive give, uh, sharing. Coercive sharing is not sharing at all. It's, it's coerced. Either you give me your money so I can redistribute to someone else or else I take you and haul you off to jail. Mm-hmm. That's not charitable. That doesn't come from a willing heart. That comes from a coerced uh, government authority. Mm-hmm. So thinking about some of these uh, laws, would it be, would it be ideal if, if the U.S. used these laws from Old Testament Israel? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because, you know, you look at these laws, and they can seem very strong, and but they are God's laws, so you think, well, is this, is, is this the way that Christ is going to reign? I, I believe that Christ will reign for a thousand years on earth in the future. That's my understanding of what the Bible teaches from an eschatological standpoint. So whether you believe that or not, just for the sake of discussion, how will Christ reign over the earth? You know, will, will, will these laws be his laws? You know, will, if a man curses his father, will he be put to death? Um, you know, I'm not completely sure about that, but we know that he's going to reign perfectly and in righteousness. He's going to reign with perfect truth and yet with grace and compassion. So these laws are from God. Let's remember that. And God is good and right all the time. Therefore, his laws are good and right. So the degree to which a nation adopts God's laws and wisely implements them is really directly proportional to how that nation will honor or dishonor God. It would be also directly proportional to how stable that society will be. So we do want our laws, and our founders realize this for sure in our Constitution, even our laws now, like we mentioned earlier and a couple weeks ago, that our, the Ten Commandments were the basis upon which our legal system is founded. So our founders knew this. And so the opposite is, well, think about the removal of, of all things God and all things biblical from our country, and ask, if are we better off? with our children not seeing the Ten Commandments, not living according to God's laws? Are we better off that, you know, millions of babies are being killed in the womb? Are, are, are we better off when, you know, our, our laws don't reflect God's goodness and holiness? And I think the answer is no, we're not better off. We're way worse off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, I think God gives room for nations to apply his laws. It doesn't have to be maybe exactly the way Old Testament Israel, which was a theocracy, the way the application and use there was, but the general principle is the more a nation honors God, the more that nation will be honored. Mm. So, David, let me jump ahead to Exodus 23 and verse 14. It says, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. So maybe we could talk about how um, Israel's three annual feasts, how they were instituted in Exodus 23. Yeah, this was the, the these these were huge feasts that became a part of the annual calendar of the Jewish people, and and they're they're noted all throughout the Bible. Uh, and the three main feasts were the feast of unleavened bread, unleavened bread that was really commemorating the Exodus what we've gone through the the pat the time of the Passover. That's when Passover was instituted. So that's the first feast. The second one is the feast of the harvest. It was also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. You sometimes read that in the Bible, but there's only three basic feasts. And the Feast of the Ingathering, which was the final harvest, or that's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. So those three feasts, Unleavened Bread, Feast of Harvest, Feast of the Ingathering, 
where we're part of the yearly calendar when all the men specifically had to come and and spend time in Jerusalem. There was time of worship, and, and these were called holidays or holy days. And, and God designed this so that people didn't just get on with their work and forget about God. And, and you look at like our holy days now in our country, our biggest Christian holidays are Christ, Christmas and Easter, and even to an extent, Thanksgiving is a kind of a Christian holiday. You're thanking God for his provision. And you just think about those holidays, let's say specifically Christmas and Easter, how, how the the God part of it, the 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 you know Christ's birth or Christ's death and resurrection have been so removed from those holidays, whereas Christmas has become about Santa Claus and Easter's about the Easter Bunny and and Thanksgiving's about Turkey Day and football. How how just even little things like that do the opposite of what God intended by these feasts to have a nation that actually took time each year to devote time to worship them in the, in, in these holidays. Wow. That's so, so good. All right. Um, I'm curious as I wonder about the way that God previewed the conquest of the, of the promised land. What is it like 39 years in advance? Yeah. Well, you remember that we here we are at Mount Sinai. We're only 11 months into the Exodus. And so now the people are getting the law, they're getting the 10 commandments you know, Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. They're down below. They're in abject fear. They're watching the lightning and thunder and God, you know, coming down to the mountain. They're just, you know, un- this is just an unbelievable situation. The people are just in awe. And that word awesome really probably should only be used for God because he's the only awesome right. being uh, in the universe. And so they were just in awe. And, and God at this point, you know, the Ten Commandments were a test of obedience. Are you going to are you going to obey me? And the people, you know, vowed we are going to follow you. They had seen what they saw on the mountain. They're ready to obey, even though that's going to change very very quickly. Um, but God gives them a promise here uh, that that He's given them that we've gone over many times during these conversations. It comes up again and again. It's if you obey me, you will be blessed. But mm-hmm. if you don't obey me. There will be consequence. And again, he reiterates it here with the conquest of the land. He's telling them they don't know it's going to be 39 years from now because they're going to wander around the desert for a long time. But he's giving them a promise. Look, if you follow me, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to lead you in. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be like a hornet, the hornets, he calls it. (laughs) I'm going to rid that land of the people who are there right now. I'm going to prepare it for you. So he's setting specific boundaries they're going to have well in advance. So they have this expectation that if they follow God and obey him, things are going to go well. And that really is really applicable for us today. When we obey God, things will go well for us. It doesn't mean that there won't be trials, but we will have a peace even in the midst of those trials, knowing we're in a right relationship with the God of this universe. Yeah, David, so good. I love the study. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Bill. Enjoyed it. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. Make sure you catch his radio show on Saturdays. You can pick it up uh, on the podcast as well. We'll take a break. Joe Dallas is up next. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? 
Thanks for joining me today. Awfully glad that we've uh, got Joe Dallas coming on the program in just a minute. And also, then at the top of the hour, we're going to have our Old Testament series continuing with Micaiah. And uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner got here early, and he's now in studio with me. So I said, why don't you join me, because we'll talk to Joe Dallas. Uh, Peter, uh, teach, you teach sexuality classes here at the U, I mean, at the um, on campus, don't you? I do, yeah. yeah I've been since about 2013, uh, 14. It's yeah. been a really interesting eight, nine-year journey. A lot of topics have come up since uh, in these last eight years. I'm glad we're doing this so this half an hour. You could be very useful to me right uh, now. We'll <laughs> see about that. That might be an overstatement, but we'll yeah. try, yeah. Joe's an author and a conference speaker and an ordained pastoral counselor. He directs a biblical counseling ministry for those dealing with sexual and relational problems and with their families as well. Joe, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Good talking with you again. Thank you. And say hi to Peter so he doesn't feel left out. <laughs> How you doing, Peter? Good it's, to meet you. Yeah, you too. Great to hear your voice. Peter, I don't know if you heard, but Peter teaches uh, human sexuality classes here at the, at the University of Northwestern. That's great. So That's he, great. Yeah, it's been quite the journey, I will say that. I mean, there's so many topics in the syllabus that the students need to talk about today and families as well that just weren't really part of our of our psyche as families and communities even seven, eight years ago. So I'm, I'm glad you're addressing what you're doing here today. Exactly right. I really feel like we've almost been ambushed by a lot of this stuff. We just were not prepared for it, didn't see it coming, and who could have, you know? Mm-hmm. You talk about, uh, Joe, that you're, you say most Christians know what the Bible has to say about sex and marriage, but many Christians are bound by porn, homosexuality, adulterous behaviors, or deep emotional wounding. I'd love for you to say more about that. Well, I, I think, you know, like Peter said, um, uh, Peter, who wrote the epistles now, not not our Peter here. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. It just set me up for the crash yeah. right there. You're so deflated. The, no, the, the, the lesser Peter, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that, that uh, you know, the times come judgment must begin at the house of God. I, I think that we may be clear on our position, but there are two things happening that I think are, are hindering us. One is that I think we're uncertain as to how to state our position. We may know what we believe, but the question becomes, ah, when's it okay to say it? How do I say it? Who will I offend? What what do I worry about? What do I let slide? Then the other problem is that in too many cases, um, we're just not living what we preach. I mean, we talk to the culture about the sin of homosexuality, and yet within the church there are so many Christian men um, routinely watching pornography and giving themselves to all kinds of uncleanness and, and through that avenue alone, not to mention others. And, and I think because of that, um, when you've got that kind of moral compromise going on, you lose spiritual impact. You lose the confidence that comes with authenticity. And in many cases, I mean, I, I, I almost want to say, who are we kidding? The world reads the Barna statistics. I mean, people find out that among the Christian population, many people who profess to believe in certain sexual standards are not themselves living those standards. Then there is another issue, and you brought it up, uh, Bill, and that is of wounding. Um, I certainly don't think it's a sin to be wounded, and we don't tell people to repent of their wounds. Wounds need to be healed. But in many cases, um, people have brought their emotional wounds with them into the body of Christ. Being born again does not necessarily mean that those wounds are going to vanish. Uh, relationally, we tend to each other's wounds if we're doing it right. And if we're not doing it right, we set people up to look elsewhere for healing, and uh, oftentimes in all the wrong places. So just for example, I've known a lot of, of uh, women 
who were deeply wounded early in life by someone who violated them. Um, and, and then they brought that wound into the body. And if they found that among Christian friends and the Christian population, they were just told to get over it. Um, you know, don't basically don't be wounded. It's a sin to be wounded. Why uh, a lot of them gave up on the church and felt like I'm going to go where I'm understood. And oftentimes that means going to the ungodly for counsel. But if they're getting more empathy there than they get in the body of Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when they go there. So all of those things, I think, hinder us from being able to take the stand we need to take. In light of what you're talking about, too, it, it's not that we haven't been taught about sex or, or don't know about it. It's uh, maybe perhaps that our teachers have just been so rubbish in terms of uh, whether it be media or whether it be um, the experiences that we've had or whether it be the educational system. <clears throat> but you referenced the idea that as a church, we just really haven't talked much about these things. And because of the wounding and because of the complexity of that, how, do you have suggestions if you are a, a parent or a grandparent or a church leader? Or something, how do you even just start the conversation in light of the profound wounding in light of the complexity, in light of the difficulty of the topic? Well, I think that there's, there's two ways we need to be hitting this. I think one is um, by way of preparation. When we're raising our kids, I, I would hope that from early in life, Christian parents are teaching their kids, look, uh, we go by a different standard. You're going to, over the years, your friends are going to be allowed to view things that we wouldn't view, and you're going to see, you know, through your friends engage in things that we don't engage. And here's why we believe that we you know, we have a creator. Our creator has intentions for us. This document has spelled out those intentions. We strive to live by them. We know that they work. Uh, and, and when you lay that foundation, then when it's time for talking about sex, which is usually about three years earlier than we think it will be, whatever age you think your kids are ready to talk about it, deduct about three years, and you'll probably be in the right ballpark figure. But the, the point is, you don't want to just jump in and talk about sex when you're raising kids. You want to talk about the foundations of the faith, and then sex is just one one part, an outgrowth of that worldview. I think in the church, after the fact, there's preparation and then there's response. I think within the body, I, I wish we talked more about the fact that um, we, we belong to each other as members of the body of Christ, and we, we want to be engaged with each other. Um, we don't want to just come to church to be fed by the shepherd, as important as that is. We should be feeding each other as well. We can challenge the lies that people within the church have believed. In fact, I, I'll testify to this personally. When I came uh, back, I, I rededicated myself in 1984 after about a six-year backslide, uh, during which time I was a very committed gay activist. I came back into the church wounded, and the, the love, the the fraternal love, the commitment of the men at the church that I went to was invaluable in challenging a lot of the lies I had believed about Joe Dallas, that I didn't fit in, that I was unacceptable, that I was on the outside and always would be. And there's a lot we can do for each other just in the context of our relationships if we'll commit to that. And I do think in the church it's important to spell out the fact that, yes, there is a standard God has given that we hold to, and we're not going to compromise that. But we also recognize that all of us, in some way, to some extent, struggle to live out the standards that we believe. And, and in our church, it is safe and even commendable to admit where we fall short, where we are struggling, where we are tempted, where we have failed, whatever. This is a community of safety and a community of standard. And uh, we don't expect you to try to be more than what you are. 
And I think those kinds of messaging that from the pulpit, especially, but really throughout the church in our in our local church culture, can go a long ways to making us all a lot healthier. Mm-hmm. Joe Dallas is our guest. He's authored uh, six books on human sexuality from the Christian perspective. You can learn more about him at Joe Dallas, just like the city, joedallas.com. When we talked about uh, healing from trauma or for healing from any past sexual experience of any kind, it seems that that applies to everybody who's listening right now. You know, I think it does. I mean, good grief, we're in a sexually idolatrous culture, aren't we? I mean, it's pretty hard in any metropolitan area to drive for 10 minutes without getting hit with a sexy billboard or somebody dressed very immodestly or something suggestive on the radio or I don't know. I mean, there is a lot of stimulation out there. There's, uh, of course, the easy access to porn, which has penetrated all of our lives and I think had a very defiling effect on us. There's the messaging we get through the films and the TV shows and the books and, uh, you know, the culture at large. And I think for all of those reasons, there's a lot of sexual confusion and, yeah, a lot of sexual wounding because, good grief, if we remove the protection of purity, chastity, modesty, uh, girls especially, but, but guys too, we get in the habit of giving ourselves away too easily. And in the process, uh, we don't just completely detach from our emotional self. The soul goes along with the body, and frequently people kid themselves into thinking they can have more casual encounters then wind up hoping that those encounters will become something more committed, and they don't. And that's the beginning of a lot of wounding. So uh, there, there, I think, is a lot of healing that a lot of us within the body are needing and, and even seeking. And I think that, as I said, our healthy relationships go a long ways uh, towards achieving that. The first supervisor I had told me, that the average person who sat down in my office for counseling was not there because they were mentally ill. They were there because something had gone wrong in relationship. And as a result, they were in pain. The pain had affected their ability to function well. They were having relational problems and emotional problems. And I got to say, that was uh, 35 years ago. Darn it, he didn't turn out to be right. Hmm. Joe, you're talking about the relational pain <clears throat> that's so pervasive among people, and, and also, too, some of your experience earlier on where uh, the, the men came around you in a fraternal sort of way. Do you think some of the draw and some of the allure that seems uh, almost unique to these sexual temptations is because people are feeling such a relational void in their life, and maybe they interpret the desire for friendship and intimacy only through then the lens of something related to sex as opposed to just simple friendship and having people that know you and see you and love you? Yeah, I do think that. I do think that. Look, we're hungry to connect. Whether we, we we can say it's for better or worse, I think it's for better, but the fact is we can't get around that. We are going to try to connect one way or another, just like we're going to eat one way or another. Now, the kicker is junk food is so easily available, and it's so intense, by the way, that we tend to crave that and go for it because it's quick and easy and it goes down with a lot of intensity. So when I'm, you know, I, I lost 50 pounds last year, so I can talk about dieting here. <laughs> way I, to go, I, by I the way. That, thank you. When, you know, when I'm craving something, I do not crave um, steamed broccoli. <laughs> that doesn't happen. I crave pizza, ice cream, donuts. A, a loaf or two loaves of bread, too, preferably. I mean, it's, uh, so what I crave is not in my best interest, but it's still what I crave. The problem is what's available immediately is almost always junk food, isn't it? I mean, the stuff available at the Seven Eleven, the liquor store, the drive through the Jack in the Box, the McDonald's, 
The junk food you can get anytime, 24-7. All you have to do is grab it. If you want a good meal, you've got to take the time to prepare it, to shop for it, to cook it. Now, ultimately, you will be more satisfied if you go with that. But if junk food is all that's either available or it's what's the most easily accessed, you're going to default to that. Now, this is where relationships come in here. Um, I think it obviously takes a lot more investment and patience and discipline to develop healthy relationships where there's give and take and communication and growing in intimacy. Uh, whereas prostitutes, pornography, hookups, bars or bathhouses, they're all available. And you know what? You can go to those anytime and immediately get something very intense. And uh, like junk food, it will feel very, very good temporarily. It will satisfy your craving, but not your hunger needs. You will be hungry again shortly. So for me, um, I, I learned after I repented of homosexuality back in 84, um, and in my case, it was not just homosexuality. It was a deeply ingrained porn habit and a high level of promiscuity. Well, that was some pretty intense stuff. And when I, I weaned myself off of that, I realized, man, I am really hungry and, and I am tempted to default to the quick fix because it takes a lot of time and effort and patience to develop healthy relationships. But what I did find, um, as you were mentioning, two healthy relationships I discovered within the church, was that, good grief, it is possible to enjoy what is genuinely good for me. It's not as intense, and it's not as quick, and it's not always available like porn would be or like a, a prostitute would be, but it is going to satisfy the needs of my soul more. And that helped prep me for uh, what happened a few years later when I met the young woman who became my wife back in 87. But that was all brought about because uh, within the body of Christ, I was blessed enough to find and develop some healthy relationships that spoke to the needs of my soul. And definitely, if you are building people up emotionally, if, and I, this is not turning church into some big group therapy thing. That's not what church is about. But it so happens that when we are living Christianity as it's meant to be lived, we are loving God, we are in the Word, we are getting grounded in sound doctrine and in agape love. That love speaks to the needs of the soul. And when we are healthier people, we are much better able to withstand the erotic temptation that's all around us. It will still be a temptation, you know, just because, just like I eat very well now, I eat very healthy. That doesn't mean that I don't occasionally crave the starch or the sugars. But being satisfied, essentially, I am much better able to handle the sporadic cravings that come. The same is true with the erotic cravings. When we are well-grounded emotionally, when we know in our local church that there are people who know us and are involved in our lives, we are growing in grace together, we are seeking God, we are, we are people of God together in community, it makes it a lot easier to say no to the cheap thrills that are always there but not nearly as tempting when we have the real thing. Mm-hmm. Joe Dallas is our guest. We're going to come back and talk about his latest book called Christians in a Cancel Culture. We'll be right back.
How can you speak wisdom about politically charged and, and personal subjects with equal parts compassion and conviction? Joe Dallas, my guest, addressed that in his book called Christians in a Cancel Culture. And Joe, Peter and I are curious as to why today's world has grown so hostile to Christians and to biblical values. Whoa. Uh, you know, I tried to tackle that. It's a heck of a question, and I'm sure there's not one simple answer, but I did uh, try to explain in the book that there are three primary problems I think we've got, or that people are exhibiting, conscience, convenience, and conviction. And let me explain that. I think conscience is an issue in that um, we're in a time when the culture is pressuring us to celebrate things that I believe our natural instincts testify against. I think our natural instincts, just for example, testify against abortion. I think that we are, and I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian alike, whether or not we've been regenerated. I think there is a natural instinct that says, hey, if there's life within that womb, that is life within that womb. We become deferential and gentle around women who are pregnant. And in most cases, nobody taught us to do that. That's instinct. I think instinctively we know that. Well, when we demand the right to murder what is within the womb, I think we're going counterintuitive, and I think people realize that, so their own conscience is troubling them. And so when you come along with a pro-life message, you can get some very serious pushback. It's, it's similar to what happened to uh, um, poor old Stephen in, in the book of Acts when he preached a heck of a sermon, a very confronted one, and uh, uh, the way Luke described it, his hearers were cut to the quick almost like they were cut asunder in their consciences, and they took it out on him. And I think that that's one of the things we're seeing when, when the church takes a stand on, say, same-sex marriage or transgender or abortion, why um, there are people who I believe are troubled in their consciences because they're trying to embrace something counterintuitively. And I think you know how that plays out. If, if my conscience is testifying against me, if I'm trying to ignore that, then I'm also going to be hostile towards you if you are speaking in concert with my conscience. I think that's one problem. Another is convenience. I think that the Christian position on social issues is an inconvenience to people who want to legitimize those issues. So there's a convenience factor, somewhat like when Paul was preaching in Ephesus and um, uh, Demetrius, the, uh, the, the craftsman who made shrines to Diana, realized that Paul was preaching and thereby people were converting to Christianity and turning away from the worship of Diana, that was bad for his business. It was inconvenient. And so he stirred up a mob riot against Paul. And I think that we're seeing that happening today as we are um, just by living our faith out. We're not trying to make trouble, but just by holding the positions we hold, we are an inconvenience to some social causes that are dedicated to a different different worldview and a different uh, uh, way of behavior. And then there's the conviction issue. There are people who hold a real conviction that we are dangerous. I mean, those are true believers. Mm. And there are people who, as we speak, really do put us sincerely in the same category as the KKK or the American Nazi Party. And i got to tell you, if I um, uh, found that the KKK had opened shop in my neighborhood, I'd be hostile. And I wouldn't shed any tears if somebody burned their place down. I should, just to be honest, because I believe in free speech, even if it's disgusting speech. I still believe in, in bringing it to the light where it can be challenged rather than trying to shut people down. But emotionally, I would not feel much for the members of the KKK whose little shop got burned down. 
Now, the culture is being taught that we are hateful people like the KKK or the American Nazi Party. So when when speech codes and and uh, hate crime legislation comes down the pike to silence the Christian viewpoint on social issues, which people call hateful, if the culture can be convinced that we really are hateful, then they're going to be okay with us being silenced and marginalized because uh, who cares what happens to a hateful person who has a lethal message. So I think I think one other thing that we ought to consider um People want to be part of something noble. Um, I think that's a a God-given instinct. We want to fight tyrants. We want to protect the oppressed. And I think that's good. Um, The problem is these days people are also uh, very intellectually lazy. So they have the desire to be part of a noble cause. And somebody comes along and says, I have a noble cause for you. Sign up. And people will sign up without checking the accuracy of the claims of the cause. And that's exactly why a lot of people are quick today to say that if you hold the biblical viewpoint on abortion or on sexuality or on gender, that you are hateful, they haven't really checked it out. They've just been told the tyrant is the evangelical church. The oppressed are the people who the evangelical church does not condone. Therefore, you need to take up the banner against the evangelical church. Now, like I said, it's not like we're trying to start a fight. We're not. Um, and by and large, Christians really are not going into the culture saying, hey, all of you sinners need to stop doing the sinful things you do. We are basically speaking to each other in our own churches, our own radio programs, our own counseling centers. And then at times, yes, we do speak to the culture and say, we do believe God has spoken on this issue. This is what he has to say. We'd like you to consider it. But we're not trying to establish a theocracy here. And yet, just to hold the positions we hold um, makes us very odious to a lot of people, not because we believe in Jesus. I don't think that's going to get you in trouble. But if you follow biblical teaching on the human experience, what God intended for the family, for the union between man and woman, for children, God's definition of social justice as opposed to the definitions of social justice that are being put out today, and uh, if you hold to the exclusives of the faith, one way to the one God who exists, the the reality of an afterlife, either uh, a very, very wonderful place or a very terrible place, the fact that we are born sinful rather than wonderful, those doctrines are not very complimentary, and those are the ones that today will get you in some big trouble. So I think those are some of the primary reasons we see such hostility towards a, a biblical worldview. Great answer, Joe. This is... Uh... This answer would be need to come in under two minutes. So uh, I know there's a lot of people, because I hear from them at the station, who are having a difficulty sustaining a relationship with people who are uh, feel so threatened by God's truth. What, what might you say to them? Appeal to fairness. I really find it helpful to say, look, can we be fair with each other? You do disagree with some people, don't you? Yes, of course I do. You disapprove of some things, don't you? Well, yes, of course I do. Does that mean you hate the people you disagree with or disapprove of? No, of course not. We just disagree, and I hold a different view. doesn't mean I hate them. Thank you very much. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was That's perfect. That's about fairness, you see. That's not very profound. I think it's common sense. I, I think appeal to people's sense of fairness and appeal to the desire for mutual respect. 
can we respect each other and be adult enough with each other to hold different viewpoints without terminating our relationship? That's yeah. a fair request. I try to buy common sense in bulk on this show and pass the savings <laughs> on to my listeners. <laughs> so it's been great having you on, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. I hope we can do it again. Thank you for having me. You bet. Joe Dallas has been my guest. His recent book that we chatted about just now is called Christians in a Cancel Culture. And you can uh, learn more about that. If you want to go to Amazon, you can go check it out there. Or you can go to his website, joedallas.com, and you can uh, he'll send you the first chapter of it if you want to check it out and read it. All right, we're going to take a, a little break. And then uh, the Old Testament series continues. And Peter, we've got uh, a very interesting hour planned, I have to say. We do. Yet a, yet another character within the Old Testament with whom I'm quite unfamiliar heading into this study, and so I'm very excited. How much prep did you do? Be honest. Um, well, it was more than one minute and less than 15. Okay. So right. I'm very excited for what our guest has to share right. on this. Yes. Yeah, we're going to talk about Micaiah, and you might think, I don't know where that is. Where can we find him right. in Scripture? Is it in First Kings? Somewhere around there. Yeah, there's some there's some <laughs> there's some stories You're in Chronicles not too. Being helpful. Yeah, <laughs> but I have to admit, I mean, I'm so excited for our guest. We yes. want to reveal it, but so excited. And the last time he was on, the two of you big time me. You ghosted me. You did not did. invite me into the conversation. So so I'm going to withhold whatever 15 minutes oh, of information whatever. I have right now. Boohoo! You had me, then you lost me. Okay, <laughs> we'll take a break. We come back. The Old Testament series. We'll continue our special guest. We call him T Dog. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.